All right, good morning, Veritas. How are we doing this morning? My name is Ryan Hamby. I get to lead the college ministry here that we call the Salt Company. Uh, and it is my joy. I'm very excited and thankful to be able to be up here and bring the word to all of us. Uh, last week, we obviously started our Advent series, right? We're trying to build this appropriate anticipation and excitement for what this Christmas season is all about. Uh, nobody here, obviously, is new to the idea of Christmas, right? We're all very familiar with what it is all about, as am I, but I think this familiarity actually could put us at a disadvantage today as we open up the Bible. Uh, in and of itself, right, familiarity is not a bad thing. Obviously, familiarity is not a bad thing. It can be very good. In this case, the well-known story of Christ's birth but we have to be careful. We have to be careful, especially this morning, I think, guys, that our familiarity does not turn into apathy. Right? That say, man, I've heard these stories so many times in my life that I could repeat them in my sleep. I think it'd be a huge loss if we became so familiar with this wild story that Dalton and the Verklers were just explaining to us, like that we would get so familiar with it that we can miss the true beauty and the amazement and the awe of what God is putting right in front of us. The deepest I ever thought, like the, the way my familiarity kind of like bred this uh, kind of weird apathy and my, like the deepest I ever thought about the Christmas story was we had this tradition at our house where we had these like little figurines about Yehi of Mary and Joseph, like old, old antique type of things. And my dad would hide them every day of December in the house. And I would wake up every single morning and go find them. And the thing would be, he'd be like, hey, they're not, I'm not moving them. My dad would say, I'm not moving them. They are actually on their way to Bethlehem to give birth. And that kind of messed me up as a kid because I thought they actually were moving at night and my dad actually wasn't touching them. So I was kind of, yeah, raised with a weird thought of Mary and Joseph in my head for sure. And he's like, and do you notice, Ryan? He's like, do you notice? Like she's getting more pregnant. And I'd be like, I think you're right, right? And that like really kind of freaked me out as a kid because every single Christmas morning, without a doubt, they would be there. Mary and Joseph had made their way to my parents' bedroom, Bethlehem, where we would go over this story together and sure enough to be a little porcelain figure of uh, Jesus right next to Mary and Joseph. And she wouldn't be as round as she was the night before, I swear. It was terrifying. Uh, but if you're anything like me and you've been raised and like just traditionalized with what this story is all about, my hope this morning is that we can kind of have that shaken up, right? Like my hope this morning for us is that we would be refreshed, kind of reinvigorated and more in awe about this story that maybe we've been so familiar with. Last week, we lit the Advent candle of hope. This week, the word on the table is peace. Peace is the word, a word that's almost universally accepted in this world as something that is good, something that should be desired, strived after, leverage your life for, the calmness of unity, the healing of relationships, the ending of arguments, the ending of wars. But today as we open up Luke 2 and read a story that's familiar to many of us, uh, we're actually going to have a problem, guys. We're actually gonna have a problem. We're gonna be confronted with a problem revolving around this word, peace. Not that the idea of peace is like a problem in and of itself, right? 
Not that there's anything wrong with peace, but I think this story actually is going to make us a little uncomfortable. A story that promises so much, but it actually might leave some of us wanting here today. The scene we'll eventually get to today, guys, is like this. Where the text is taking us is a dark, dark sky. A deep night in the wilderness. Shepherds are keeping watch over their flock. The skies open up and the heavenly host of angels make a bold and wonderful and powerful proclamation. And it goes like this. Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to all he favors. Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those he favors. Peace on earth. One of the easiest, one of the fluffiest things that we could ever say, that we could ever sing in a song, that we could ever post up in like our holiday decor. But it's actually one of the hardest promises to believe in the entire Bible if we're honest with ourselves, right? I don't need to spend much time this morning convincing us that peace is something our world is desperate for right now. That it always has been. But can we just stop for a moment, just sit in it? Can we just stop and imagine for one second? Peace. What would it be like if, like, if the angels were actually right? If when they were proclaiming that Jesus coming would be peace on earth, what would it be like? Do you ever dream of peace? My problem with peace this morning is actually very simple. Where is it? <laughs> That's the problem with peace this morning. Where is it? Where is the peace? What we are promised by the angels doesn't seem to really be our reality today. What we have is disunity. We have the fracturing of relationships, the rage of arguments, war after war after war. But my hope for us this morning is that we will read a familiar story. Our eyes will be open just a little bit more in amazement. That we won't actually leave here with this problem of peace. But we will leave here experiencing biblical peace. And this is the story, hopefully in a simple and refreshing way, as we look, look at Luke 2, and it's going to be broken up into three scenes, if you will, okay? Scene one, the humble beginning. Scene two, the powerful announcement. And scene three, we will land in the here and now. And so open up your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter two. I am going to read verses one through 12 in this humble beginning. In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, so everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time, came for her, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. 
in the same region. Shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then the angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. For look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. This is the humble beginning, guys. The first scene in the story The first characters we're introduced to, you're familiar with Mary and Joseph, a young, engaged couple. And there's a few things we can learn about them right off the bat, right? There's a few things that we notice about Mary and Joseph, that they are not starting this little family of theirs in the most ideal of circumstances, are they? Right? The first couple verses here give us a cultural insight that peace was not really abounding in this region at the time. Right? Under Caesar Augustus and Quirinius, the heavy-handed rule of Rome was an unignorable fact for Israelites like our characters here. An unignorable fact. Our young engaged couple would be feeling that. Case in point, even though Mary's time to give birth seemed to be very, very near, she was still required to travel with her husband-to-be and be registered in the town which he was from, Bethlehem. Not overly convenient for a woman who's about to pop, but we learn more about Mary and Joseph. What did verse five say? It's almost so subtle that we just read it. It's almost so familiar, we read it so fast. It said in verse five, Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. She was engaged to him And she was pregnant. That is not something that is going to win you any popularity in her time and day. Making the trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem to fulfill civic duty would be one thing. But imagine the eyes that she would be receiving. Imagine the looks that Mary would be getting while on her journey. There goes Mary. The unmarried and the pregnant. The rule of the Romans would have been inconvenient for sure, but to have the shame of your own people sprinkled on you would have to be absolutely exhausting, wouldn't it? And so here it is. The time to give birth has come. The peak of all humility is about to be revealed. Performing the civic duty of a Jewish person under Roman rule, carrying the social shame of being an unmarried mother, and now ready to give birth to the Son of God himself, in a feeding trough. In a feeding trough, in a moment of pure irony. It looks like the little five-star in Bethlehem was full that night, too full for the God of the universe, the savior of the world, Jesus Christ, to even get a room. And I wonder if Mary and Joseph, later in their life, ever looked back on this night. Like, I wonder if they just, like, thought about it and were, like, laughing a little bit. Like, it was super inconvenient in the moment, super, like, unbelievable, I'm sure, how many like road bumps they came. But like, do you think they would just look back and laugh at the irony that the God of the universe could not even get a room in Bethlehem? He was born in a barn in less than ideal circumstances, flying under the radar everyone on earth as God himself took on humble human infant flesh. And as we read, the scene of humble beginnings is just getting started. The king of the entire world has arrived. It's time to party. It's time to celebrate. But who to invite? 
Who are we going to bring to this? Who are we going to like surround this new king with and celebrate with? And the answer, shepherds. Shepherds are going to welcome the king of this planet. And what we read next was this, that shepherds were keeping their flock, pulling this undesirable night shift, and they're met by a warrior in the service of this newborn baby, an angel of heaven. Okay, they're, they're, like, I wasn't there, but I don't think the angel looked like the lawn ornaments that I drove past today. Like, I don't think this angel looked like the pictures being drawn in Veritas Kids. I don't think it was a, what we generally think of as cute or pretty, this angel. We're not talking about Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life, but a real angel who every time one appears in the Bible, do you know what happens? People fall over. People tremble and shake and actually start worshiping the angels because their appearance is so terrifying. That's who just showed up. That's the angel of the Lord. This angel was shining with the glory of God, a brightness that, especially during the night shift, would knock you off of your feet. But we need to think about this, right? Like, this is really weird. This is odd. Why, shepherds? Why make the announcement first to shepherds? Well, with no more lack of irony, we're not really dealing with the socially elite, right? Shepherds. We're not dealing with the most elite people of that time. We're not met with royalty who are going to aid this newborn infant in any way possible. These are men, to put it bluntly, will have no strategic advantage to the goals of this king at all. No, actually, these men, because of their late nights, their long wandering journeys, their kind of dirty blue collar job description that they have, were actually unable to like keep with like Jewish purification, right? It's like they, like they were unable to be seen as clean for so many reasons, which people did not like about them even though they had an impressive Old Testament heritage line of like characters that many of us have heard of, like Isaac, Jacob, or even King David, they were looked down upon by their own people. Their testimonies couldn't even be counted as viable in court of law. These are the shepherds we're talking about. In other words, these are not the people, these are not the type of guys that you would want to deliver like world-changing news to first. It doesn't seem to make any sense. But here we are in the most humble beginnings possible to this story. It would seem that the author of the story is trying to communicate something great, that humility was about to change the world. As one commentator put it, it seems God thinks high theology should be given to low people. This lowly birth would set in motion a pattern in Jesus' life where he'd look first to the fishermen, the poor, the outcast, to shame what the world wrongly values as important. Like, can you imagine the rush that these shepherds, the honor that these shepherds must be feeling, and probably the confusion that these shepherds were feeling. And the story continues with the foundation of unthinkable humility firmly set in place, with us scratching our heads intently saying, why in the world would this be how a great story starts? 
we move on to scene two, which is the powerful announcement ready to be received. I'm going to pick up reading in verse 13 through 20, if you would read with me. Suddenly, there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary, Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart. She was meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they were told. The infant has arrived, swaddled tightly to keep warm through his first night in the world. The first announcement of his birth had been made to terrified and ordinary blue-collar shepherds. And now, if the shepherds had already gotten more than they bargained for, they were about to be absolutely blown away. What did we read? We read that the shepherds, their sheep, and this angel were not alone anymore. That after the announcement, they were not alone anymore, but there was an entire host, an army, if you will, of these heavenly angels, worshiping and praising their God together. And what were they saying? What we read at the beginning, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to people he favors. Glory to God in the highest and people and peace on earth to people he favors. Friends, this is shocking and it is a very odd twist in the story. For the most humble of audiences has come the most epic worship scene this earth had probably ever seen. It's like when I lived with Dalton up here, the guy who was singing and he would sing at home and I would be like, I'm not a worthy audience for this. Like you're wasting your voice and your talents on me. Like save it for Sunday morning. I also love how every time angels sing in the Bible, we always talk about our worship leaders. Like it was just like this. It was a lot better than this actually. Save your voice for a better audience. Can imagine what this was like. If you think one angel is enough to make these shepherds terrified like the Bible says, Imagine what an entire army of them would have looked like and sounded like. What brightness filled the deep night sky. What colors filled this arid land. What decibel level of praise was filling the quiet. Why? Why was this all happening? Why are we led into this scene? Because a baby was quietly born. Are you seeing this contrast? The splendor of the heavenly host lined up in rank to welcome the sovereign without his splendor. The word of life made mute. The mighty made weak and tender. The contrast is shocking. What an interesting God this is. What an interesting God this is who these shepherds and angels were praising. A God who, according to the angel song, deserved the highest praise, the glory to the highest heaven. 
That is shorthand for the loudest that you could sing to this God can never actually be loud enough. The deepest affection and love you could ever feel for him could never be deep enough to exhaust his love for you. Your endless devotion and service forever will never find his end. Glory to this God in the highest heaven. You can trace his goodness, power, beauty, humility back from this moment to eternity past and never find its end. And Christians, we plan on tracing that forward into eternity future forever. Glory to this God in the highest heaven. All for this baby Jesus, who Philippians 2 describes him like this. He existed in the form of God. He was always God, sitting sitting on his throne, but he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but instead he chose to be emptied, to empty himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And the longer, guys, guys, the longer we sit and wonder about this God's power, the more we trace back with our minds how glorious and wonderful this eternal God is the more amazing his humility becomes. This is the God who is promising to bring us peace. According to verse 14, there's people he so loves and favors that he delights in taking their brokenness and putting them back together, their painful lives and making them whole, and even makes their sad things become untrue. The power of this announcement to the shepherds should only deepen our wonder at the humility of it all the power to change the world, and the humility to still need swaddling. That's a word I learned this week, swaddling. I just love how the scene ends too. I love it. I love the shepherd's reaction to seeing a multitude of angels worshiping this baby. After they're trembling in fear, it says they hurried off to the barn in Bethlehem to see for themselves. They hurried off. They sprinted. They left their flock on their night shift and they had to see for themselves. Maybe they were thinking, why us? (laughs) Like we're asking today, maybe they're thinking, wait, what? Why the angel? What? Why us? But I doubt it. I don't think they're thinking much of themselves at all. It says in verse 20 that they left praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard which were just as they had been told. And there was Mary having what must have been a whirlwind of a day, right? Realizing with a new depth who it really was that was in her arms. Deep breath. A story we're very familiar with, but is deep and profound and should make us wonder and be in awe of who this God actually is. And we might be impressed by the story. We might say, yeah, that's a really good story. This scene in the wilderness must have been really cool, but honestly, guys, we're probably left with a little bit of tension, right? Not all the tension has been resolved. Tension that, yes, this is indeed a nice story, but the promise of peace, was it actually true? Or at least, is it as good as maybe these characters 
than these angels first thought. Friends, this is where we have to be very, very careful this morning and lean in extra close. Because we hear things like peace on earth, and if we're not careful, we might sell short what our God has actually promised us. We might sell it short. We hear this and we insert our greatest ideas of what we think peace on earth should be like. And we fail to see what God is up to in the here and now. And so as we land in the final scene, we are entering scene three, which is the here and now. What does this story actually do when it collides with us today? I think for many of us, our devotion and our willingness to worship God Right? Our devotion and our willingness to worship God is directly tied to whether or not God satisfies or meets our expectations of him. Isn't that true of all of us? Like our devotion to God, like our passion for him especially is so tied to, is Jesus gonna be who I want him to be for me? And guys, I think this is the great news this morning. God is not interested in, in meeting our expectations at all. God is not interested in meeting your expectations at all. He has a bigger vision, even for peace, than anybody here. Now, I'm not sure what anyone in this story was expecting when they heard this announcement of peace on earth. I'm not sure, but I'm guessing the angels were shocked to see their king, their lord, choose to ride a donkey up to his execution instead of taking up a war horse. I'm guessing these shepherds weren't expecting the path for peace on earth to be the son of God, like led up a hill like a lamb to be slaughtered. And I can only imagine that his very own mother would have trembled at the idea of her firstborn son dying on a cross for his friends. What should our expectations be then? What should our expectations be of this verse, of this hope for peace? If we don't receive it in Jesus' lifetime and we sure don't have it 2,000 years later, what should we actually be looking for, guys? This word peace, okay? I'm going to do my best here. Irene. It's a Greek word. Irene. It's reflective word that you probably are more familiar with is shalom. You've probably heard that word shalom before. Peace. And it's true that the connotation of these words definitely does entail like political peace, like a ceasing of war. But this peace actually goes further than just that. Shalom, the way things ought to be. The way things ought to be. It takes us all the way back to the first page of the Bible to find this type of peace. All the way back to the first page of the Bible in Genesis. A peace that existed, that when God created, he looked at his creation after all he made. And Genesis 1.21 said, it was good. 
A peace that not only frees us from war, but a peace where mankind is actually whole, complete, lacking absolutely nothing. A peace that goes beyond you not hating what you see in the mirror, who you see on the TV screen, or you even hating God. A peace that was more than a lack of bad things in you, but this like peace and goodness flowing out of you. The type of delight that can only be found when you in the cool of the day are walking in the garden with your God. Were the angels wrong about this? Were the angels wrong about this peace? Were Jesus' people and the, the people in this story, were they disappointed? Are we disappointed? Well, let me tell you this now, the true peace that God promises, guys, the true peace that God promises can never actually come first through political or military conquest. Because the problem of peace is much deeper, much worse than just that. The problem with peace today is not, why has God not stopped the wars? Why has God not fixed the the fighting that I'm seeing on my TV? Why has he not shut the mouth of those evil people ruining our country? No, the problem with peace today hits a lot closer to home. It's me, right? It's my sin. That's the true problem of peace this morning. You see, Jesus didn't come to fix the world's problems just like we would have expected him to. And thank goodness for that. If you walk past an apple tree, right, producing nothing but rotten fruit, nothing but apples that you couldn't eat or enjoy, how foolish it would be to just go grab a bucket of red paint and a little paintbrush and just go pretty up all of those dead apples. It wouldn't actually fix anything. The problem Jesus came to fix was not just the fruit of the tree, guys, but its roots, its source. Jesus didn't make it his life, life's mission just to stop Rome's oppressive rule in the life that he had on earth. God's people had been oppressed and freed many times, always to run back to their greater problem, Sin. Instead, Jesus made it his life mission to wage war on that sin that infected the roots. The sin that is in you and me, the sin that makes peace on earth absolutely impossible without God. And you know what's really humbling about this text? It's that this God coming to earth as a baby with the chosen destiny to die was the only way to fix the war of sin inside of me. This was the only way. Stopping wars, well, we know from the cameo of the angels, that would be easy with an army like that. But the hatred, rebellion, and apathy that I have towards God, that would take an absolute miracle, guys. And so Jesus set his sights on real peace. Shalom, this irene, the type that makes walking with our God in the garden possible again. Fullness, wholeness, completeness, the unceasing delight This is what Jesus has set out to do. This is why he came to earth. Now, will war cease, right? Like, will there be a throne established on the new heavens and the new earth where Jesus will rule and reign again? Absolutely. But the question for us this morning, Veritas, is this. Will we be okay with the way in which Jesus actually wants that to happen? What's Jesus' big idea to bring peace on earth? 
Lord, remember what the Verklers read for us as we lit the Advent candle of peace at the beginning. They read 2 Corinthians 5, which says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. Do you catch what this is saying, guys? As Jesus died on the cross, paying the price for our wicked, self-obsessed sin, he was making it possible to experience this shalom, this fullness of peace again. How? By restoring or reconciling our relationship to him first. The relationship we broke has found its reconciliation, its healing at the bloody cross. And not only that, but guys, three days later when Jesus rose from the grave, defeating the power of sin forever, he invited us into this mission of peace with him. And this means that the wholeness of peace that God restored in us, it can't sit still. Like the peace he has created in us by reconciling us to himself, it does not sit still. It's active. And we've been sent out to spread this peace to every heart that is broken around us. That we, the church, the gathering together of reconciled people would have a contagious peace about us that this broken world cannot ignore. Friends, this is our charge today. This is what the humble story of a baby in a manger is proclaiming to us. Be reconciled to your God. And then take that message to everyone who needs it. Be reconciled to your God by faith. And take that message to everyone who needs it. To be at true peace is not just this absence of something wrong. It's not just no more problems. It is the active living out of a new identity, a new reality that Christ has bought for us. That you were once an enemy of God, that I was an enemy of God, and he has made peace with us. True peace will not come from just political unity or from worldwide ceasefire, guys. Though those are good, they are just fruits of the truest peace that can only happen when Jesus saves our souls from an eternity separated from him. And so what I feel now, what I'm confronted with now, is guys, are we humble enough to take this charge today? Are we the type of people humble enough to take this charge today? It's easy to desire power and just want our world to change with the snap of our fingers, but we will have to be humble. Veritas, we will have to be humble enough to see God's peace restore this world one heart at a time. Will we be humble enough to accept that the world's peace problem is actually our very own sin problem? That the only way for us to be reconciled was for a humble king dying in our place? That's good news this morning, and I hope so badly 
that when we see the story of Luke 2, we see it with refreshed eyes, a new sense of wonder and awe, and that we are knocked back by the power of God and we are drawn close by his humility. And like the shepherds, we hurry out of here and we share this good news to everybody who will listen. Let's pray. Yeah, Father, I just want to confess to you that yeah, before I knew you, I was your enemy. Before I knew you, God, all the, all the things in my heart were hatred towards you. But by your grace and your grace alone, by what we see on the cross and the empty tomb, Lord, it's that you were going to great lengths to turn me from an enemy into a child. And so God, I pray that um, as we are confronted with your power, your humility, and your grace this morning, in a story that we've heard so many times, Lord, would we just want to worship? Would we just want to stop and like, yeah, let this uncomfortability, let this desire for peace invade us? And will we actually do the hard thing, the humble discipline of just sitting in silence in the presence of our God who loves us and just gasp at how amazing it is that he would make peace with somebody like me. Lord, I pray that Veritas would be a place like that, full of peace, full of the gospel and infectious to a world who needs it. All right, guys. As we close in worship today, uh, yeah, Dalton's going to play over us for about a minute. And I just want us to kind of practice this attitude of peace. Like sit almost in like this longing for what God wants the world to become again. Sit in this amazement at what God has done in you already. Or I even encourage you to sit in surrender of God wants to do in you right now that you can move from an enemy of this king to his son or daughter, even this morning.